we will be reading from portions of scripture from Exodus chapter 32, 33 and 34. Exodus chapter 32, verses 1 to 14. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen these people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out, to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and all this land I have prom that I have promised I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Exodus chapter 33, verses 1 to 6 and 12 to 17. The Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments, that I may know what to do with you. Therefore, the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onwards. 
Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, Bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider too that this nation is your people. And he said, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us, so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken, I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Exodus chapter 34, verses 29 to 33. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterwards, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Aaron. I'm an elder here at One Covenant Church, and it is my great joy to bring to you this word that God has given us today. This is a tremendous passage, and it is one that I really struggled with as I read it because there's so much here about who God is about his mercy and about his grace that I wasn't sure that I could cover it in, uh, in one sermon, but uh, Pastor Z told me he covered seven chapters last week so I could jolly well handle three. <laughs> and so off we go. Our passage this morning represents the great crisis of the book of Exodus. Now, if you've read the book of Exodus from beginning to end, that might sound a bit strange to you. At the beginning of Exodus, we have the people of Israel, and they are enslaved by what was, in that time, the greatest military and political power in the world. This was a people threatened with genocide and oppression at home. And once they break free from Egypt, they are threatened with thirst, starvation, and war in the wilderness. But here, in our passage this morning, we find the people of Israel threatened by something far greater than war or thirst or hunger. An enemy far more deadly than the Egyptians or the Amalekites. Their own sinfulness. From the beginning of Exodus until now, it is interesting to note 
that Moses has not once referred to the people of Israel as sinning. Now that doesn't mean that they weren't sinning. We've seen them struggle throughout the book from the very beginning, but what it does mean is that Moses is trying to tell us that it is here in Exodus 32 that the full picture of just how sinful and rebellious the Israelites really are comes into total focus. And therein lies the great crisis of our passage. How can a holy God dwell among a sinful people? As Pastor Z told us last week, as he described the tabernacle, it is not easy for a holy God to live among sinners. How can a group of idolaters, led by an idol-building priest, presume to be the people of the living God? The events of our passage happened over three thousand years ago, but the question remains just as relevant for us as it was for them. How does this just holy God have fellowship with sinners like the Israelites and like you and like me? Exodus 32 opens with the people confronting Aaron. The Hebrew actually says they came up against Aaron. Now Moses is still up on Mount Sinai. He's been on Mount Sinai for weeks. And the people have become afraid. Now we need to take a step back and recognize the fact that this fear, the fear that these people are feeling at this point is not in and of itself wrong. These are people who have known oppression throughout their lives. They've been enslaved. They've only been free for a matter of weeks. They're alone in the wilderness, and they've just recently been attacked by raiders. Now Moses, as far as they can tell, has been gone, and he's been gone a lot longer than any human being could survive alone without food and without water. So their fear is understandable, but their reaction to that fear is reprehensible. They turn to Aaron, and their response shows us just how faithless these people are. They immediately turn to paganism, to idolatry. They say to Aaron, up, make us gods, plural, who shall go before us. And even worse, if you read what they say to Aaron in verse 1, they don't even attribute their own freedom to the actions of God. What is it that they say? They say, as for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, We do not know what has become of him. You see, they don't attribute their freedom to the God whose power it is that brought them out of Egypt. As far as they're concerned, this was Moses' doing. And now Moses is gone. So give us 
something to put in front of us that we can see and we can touch that'll make us feel safe. How did this happen? How did a people who saw God work miracles in Egypt, part the Red Sea, who spoke to them only a few weeks ago from this very mountain, how can these people fall into such an ugly sin so quickly? Now, before we judge them too harshly, we need to take a moment and we need to examine ourselves. Is the idea of falling into an ugly sin right after having a really grand spiritual experience so unfamiliar to us as Christians? You know, in my own life, I've often had a time where I felt very close to God, whether it was a a really good sermon that I heard, or a, a great time of prayer, or, or retreat. And you know what happened right after? I yelled at someone I loved. Or I did something I shouldn't. Or I'm gossiping about someone I claim to care about. Are we really so unfamiliar with how easy it is to fall into sin right after feeling like we've been with God. Whenever we do it, we're doing exactly what the Israelites do here. We are repudiating our spiritual experience through our sinful conduct. Now, if the Israelites' sin is bad, Aaron's is even worse. Now with Moses gone, Aaron is acting as his representative. Now in some sense, Aaron is at this moment the leader of this congregation, in particular the spiritual leader of this congregation. And when the people come up against him, does he stand up for God? Does he stand up for his own brother, Moses, does he put himself at risk? No. We see it in verse 2. He folds like a cheap suit. And worse, after he makes the idol that they've asked for, and he sees that the people like the idol, he goes one step further. He builds an altar And then claims, in verse 5, that the following day will be a feast day. To who? To Yahweh. So now we're not just involved in paganism or idolatry. We're now engaged in apostasy. Now what is apostasy? Apostasy is worshiping the true and living God in the ways that he has specifically said he must not be worshipped. First commandment, I am the Lord your God who redeemed you from the land of Egypt. You shall have no other gods before me. The people roll up, we want to be idolaters. First commandment, done. Second commandment, 
you shall not make unto me any graven image. Aaron builds an idol, says, hey, we're going to worship Yahweh with this idol. Second commandment, done, broken. And now we get to breaking the third commandment, don't we? Taking the name of the Lord our God in vain. In other words, exposing the name of the living God to derision. Treating it cheaply. The Bible tells us that the people rose up to play. Now that is a Hebrew euphemism for promiscuity. Effectively, the Israelites are having a feast, supposedly, to Yahweh, while engaging in all of the drunken, pagan nonsense that was common in that region at that time. And here again, I think we can be tempted to distance ourselves from this story. We can say to ourselves, look, I haven't worshipped any bull statues lately. I haven't joined any fertility cults. But is worshipping our career any different than worshipping a bull statue? Is our career going to last any longer in eternity? How about our bank account? Oh, sure. We can go through the forms of worshiping God on Sunday. But if our worship of God doesn't come into the lives that we live from Monday to Saturday, then we are functionally pagans. We are living a life where ritual toward God is just incorporated into all the other gods we are keeping for ourselves. Because our real religion and our true God is ourselves. And Aaron's apostasy also looks altogether too familiar, doesn't it? If you look around today, you can see just how many churches will willingly pervert the gospel of Jesus Christ in the name of popularity in the desire to appeal to human desires and human culture. You can build a big church by telling people that what God really wants for you is to be rich, to be successful, and to be attractive. You can build a really big church by saying that Jesus loves everyone, so just go about living your life however you see fit. It's fine. The rot is in the church just as much as it is in the people because apart from the grace of God, the church is just a collection of sinners. Now Moses is still up on the mountain with God. And so the nature of this rebellion has not reached him. And so God fills him in and he makes Moses an incredible offer. God tells Moses, look, these people are a stiff-necked people. Let me just consume them, and I'll start over with just you. Now, at this point, we need to keep two things, I think, very firmly in mind. And the first one is this. This judgment from God is entirely justified. 
the Israelites at this point have essentially broken free and turned away from a covenant that they have already ratified twice. Already in Exodus chapter 19 verse 8 and in Exodus 24 verse 7, the people have heard God's commands. They have heard the Ten Commandments and they have said, we will do this. And here they are doing the literal opposite. By any reasonable interpretation, they have broken multiple of the Ten Commandments and they have denigrated the name of the living God. And so when God says to Moses in verse 10 that his wrath may burn hot against them, what we must not do is think that this is God getting emotional or unreasonably angry and deciding to wipe these people out. The wrath of God is not an emotional, sinful reaction like the one that you or I might have. The wrath of God is God's just, holy hatred for sin. God could do exactly what he tells Moses he wanted to do, and he would not be breaking a single one of his covenants. Not with Noah, not with Abraham, not with Isaac, not with Jacob. God would be just in consuming these people. Now, the second point we need to consider is the fact that this offer must have been very tempting for Moses. This must have been a very tempting offer for Moses. Now, why do I say that? Well, if you've read Exodus up until this point, you know that Moses has already endured a great deal of abuse from these people. He's been derided. He's been doubted. He's been questioned. He's been exhausted. And if you keep reading the rest of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, you'll see that this isn't going to stop. Moses is going to be derided. He's going to be looked down on. He's even going to be threatened multiple times trying to bring these people with him to the promised land. But here's why the Bible tells us that Moses is a very meek man, the most meek man in the whole world. Despite all the pain that the Israelites cause Moses, he refuses to separate himself from them. He intercedes for Israel, and the words he uses in his prayer are a masterclass on how we should pray to God when we seek intercession for ourselves or for others. Moses turns to God and he focuses on who God is. When God speaks to Moses, note something. He says, your people, like Moses' people, have committed a great sin. But when Moses turns back to God, he says, your people, God. These are your people, God, not just mine, yours. So he's reminding God of what God has said, that these are the people of God, sinfulness and all. And Moses then reminds God of what he's already done, 
that he's redeemed his people from Egypt with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm, that he's fulfilling his promises to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. And then lastly, he appeals to God on the basis of his own glory. He says, God, if you strike these people down, the Egyptians will say that this God saved them only to bring them into the wilderness and destroy them. So notice both what Moses says and what he doesn't say. He doesn't say that the Israelites are entitled to any forgiveness because they're not. He doesn't say that, well, God, your love, which means you need to just let this go. He says, you are a good and a glorious God, and these people belong to you, as you have said. And the ground, therefore, of Moses' intercession is not himself or the Israelites. The ground is the character of our God, demonstrated by how God has behaved for the sake of God's own glory. And on that basis, God relents. Now, we also need to understand what it means when it says that God relents. Does this mean that God is changing his mind? This is important because elsewhere in the Bible, it says quite clearly that God doesn't change his mind, that God does not feel regret. If you want to see that, one place would be in 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 29, but it's in other places also. So how do we reconcile the fact that God is sovereign, he doesn't change his mind, and yet here we have Moses effectively bargaining with God and causing God, as Moses tells us, to relent. The Bible scholar Alec Motier answers the question this way. I thought he had a great answer, so I'm just going to read it. He says this, Now while it is true that God does not change, there is at the heart of his changelessness a mystery, a revealed secret that the sovereign, unchangeable God accomplishes his purposes through the prayers of his people. Prayer is one of the laws of God by which he runs his universe. In other words, when Moses interceded with God, he was participating in God's will, not altering it. When we pray, we are not changing God's mind, but we are the means by which God is executing his will in the world. Now, Moses' first intercession is successful. God says, okay, fine, I'm not going to consume these people. But that doesn't mean that sin has no consequences. As we well know, forgiveness does not mean that there are no consequences of sin, both for the Israelites in that time or for us in our time. Moses goes down the mountain, and we see that even after being confronted with just how ugly a thing that they've done. These people are unrepentant. And Aaron's excuses are pitiful. 
Now, when Moses asks, literally translated in the Hebrew, who is for Yahweh, that's what he says. Only his own tribe, the tribe of Levi, rallies to his side. And in the end, there are 3,000 people who pay for their paganism with their lives. Now, we need to be open about the fact that this probably seems very harsh to us. It seems ugly, and certainly, in our time, we would never consider violence as a remedy to apostasy. That's not something we would ever do in this church, and hopefully in any church. But we also need to consider the severity of this moment. Israel's very existence as a nation is on the line at this moment. They have been confronted and told clearly just how much they have sinned, and still we have people having been given the opportunity to repent who are so hardened in their paganism that they will not turn away and repent of their sins. They reject God, they reject Moses, and they remain openly defiant. With only a small minority, the Levites, willing to stand up and be faithful. So the point of this story is not to glorify violence, but to tell us just how horrible the consequences are of remaining unrepentant in sin. And now Moses intercedes with God a second time. Now, the people haven't been consumed. The idol has been destroyed, but we still have an immense problem on our hands. As we will see over and over again in this story, we've now seen quite clearly just who the Israelites are. They are a stiff-necked people, and God, in chapter 33, verse 3, says, Look, I will send an angel before you, and you can go up to the promised land, but I will not be among you. The angel of his presence will be out front, as it were, but the literal Hebrew says, I will not go up in the midst of you. And why is he doing it? Well, he says, I'm doing it for your own safety. I'm doing it for your own safety because you are so sinful that if I were among you, I would consume you. And this message is rightfully seen in verse 4 as a disastrous word from God. Now, why is that? Why is this so important? They're still going to go up to the promised land. God is saying he's still going to be there, not among them, but there'll be an angel out front. Why is this so critical? The reason it's so critical is because ever since the Garden of Eden, the greatest problem faced by mankind is the absence of fellowship with God. And in Exodus, God's stated purpose was not merely to bring a group of people out of slavery in Egypt. It's to form a kingdom of priests and a holy nation among whom God will dwell. 
the entire formation of Israel as a nation was, in some sense, trying to get back to Eden, to that fellowship between God and humankind. Israel was to be utterly unique, a nation living for God and with God. And by doing so, Israel was meant to display the glory of God to all other nations. Israel had a mission. But now God says to them, if you're going to live like everyone else, then you're going to be like everyone else. If you're going to live godless lives, then you will not have God among you. This is a theological catastrophe. John Durham puts it like this. He says, in the place of God's presence, there will be only absence. It is a punishment announced at this point in the book of Exodus that negates every announcement, every expectation, every instruction, except those now being given. There will be no special treasure, no kingdom of priests, no holy nation, no Yahweh being their God, no covenant, no ark, no tabernacle, no altar, no cloud of glory. The people are in danger of becoming a people with no identity at all, a non-people and a non-group fragmented by the centrifugal force of their own selfish rebellion and left without hope in a land the more empty because it has been so full of Yahweh's own presence. Now, the people recognize this. They recognize it for the tragedy that it is, and they mourn. And here again, we see Moses intercede. Exodus 33 tells us that Moses has found favor in the eyes of God. It says that five times that he has found favor. And so Moses again enters into negotiations with the God of the universe on behalf of these people. And Moses starts off with a really strange question. He says, God, you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Now, that question doesn't make much sense. God just said who he was going to send with them. I'm going to send the angel out front. So why is Moses asking him that? Well, to understand why, we need to go all the way back to Exodus 3. Moses talks to God at the burning bush, and God wants Moses to lead the people out of Egypt. Moses says, I don't think I'm good enough to make that happen. And God says back to him, what? He says, I will be with you. Not an angel, me, God. So what Moses is trying to do very politely and very reverently is to say, hey, wait a second. This is a rhetorical question. He's reminding God of his promise. Lord, you said, I will be with you. Will you really? Moses is saying he needs God's presence and his guidance. And he says, show me your ways. If I'm going to lead these people, I need more of you. When the people got scared, they turned to a calf. When Moses got scared, he turned to the living God and said, Lord, help me. I need more of you. And Moses also circles back to one of his key points from the last time he interceded. Consider, too, that this nation is your people, God. 
And God responds graciously. He reaffirms his commitment to Moses. He says this, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. But we need to notice a key distinction right there. God has promised that he will go, but only with Moses. The you in Exodus 33:14 is singular. I will go with you, Moses, but not with these people. And Moses turns around and basically says, not good enough. He points out that God's presence, not just with Moses, but among all of the Israelites, is the key mark of his favor, not just among Israel, but for Moses himself. Moses is in effect saying, Lord, the greatest mark of your love is to be with us, not just me, us. We need you with us more than we need anything else. How often do we pray like this? How often does it occur to you or to me that what we need most in our lives today and every day is the presence of the living God? If you're a Christian, God the Holy Spirit has said that he will indeed dwell inside of you. In fact, the literal translation from the New Testament is that the Holy Spirit tabernacles with us. How often do we rest in that amazing truth in the midst of our struggles? How often do we remind ourselves that God is not far away, he is near? He is right here with us, that the very thing that Moses wanted most in the world and that he asked for is the thing that Jesus Christ offers to each and every one of us every hour of every day. Or do we act as if God is the angel out front? A God who cares about us and he's kind of out there. He's kind of helping us get where we need to go. But he's not with us. When we see now that Moses' intercession is successful, God declares in verse 17 that he will do exactly as Moses has asked. The presence of God will indeed be with Israel as originally envisioned. He doesn't do this based on any righteousness found among the Israelites, but on the basis of Moses' favor with him. And even more than that, Moses asks for still more. When the people became fearful, they turned away from God. But Moses turns towards God, and he asks for something really unusual in verse 18. He says, show me your glory. Now, we need to ask a question. Why? Why is he asking for this? He's just gotten everything that he came for. God has just said, okay, I am going to go up, not just with you, but with all of the Israelites, and still Moses is asking for more. Why? Hasn't this crisis been averted? Now, the answer, I think, lies in how God responds. Now, there's a bit of a mystery here. Earlier in Exodus 33, it actually says that God speaks to Moses face to face as a man speaks with his friend. 
Exodus 33.10. But here God says, you can't see my face. No one can see my face and live. This is part of the mystery of God's holiness, that God can speak with man face to face, but there is a form of God which we simply cannot see, that is so far beyond us, that is so other from us, that if we ever saw it, we'd die. So, Moses, so God says to Moses, look, you cannot see my face, but I will make all of my goodness pass before you. And so what God does in answering Moses' request is he tells Moses his name, his essential character. In Exodus 34, 5 to 7, he says that he's a God of mercy and grace, slow to anger, abounding in love. So even though he does indeed judge sin as it deserves to be judged, as the Apostle James put it, Mercy triumphs over judgment. Think about this passage and ask yourself if this isn't like the topic sentence for who God is. The people have committed a gross sin. All of them could justly be killed. Instead, we go from a covenant that's broken to a covenant that's restored. We see stone tablets shattered in front of an idol remade. We see a Moses ignored and rejected brought back shining with the glory of God. We see Aaron, the idol builder, anointed as high priest. In fact, he will become the head of what will be known as the Aaronic priestly order. This guy who just built a calf. This is a God abounding in grace. But if you've read your Old Testament, you also know that it's not enough. The rest of the Old Testament could be thought of as the story of the failure of the Mosaic Covenant. These people aren't going to change. They're still sinners. They're still faithless. And over and over again, for centuries, Israel is going to fall into idolatry and sin over and over again. This covenant is not good enough. And the prophet Jeremiah and others said a new covenant would be needed, a better covenant. Moses is a great man. He is God's friend. He is God's servant, but he is not perfect. He is a sinner. So we need a better covenant, and we also need a better mediator. But Moses' intercession points forward towards a far greater mediator and a far greater covenant, and that is the covenant of our Savior, Jesus Christ. That covenant is not written on tablets of stone. It is written on your heart, and it is written on mine. And as God's people, we do not take our fears and our sorrows to the idols of this world. 
Friends, whatever it is that you are carrying with you today, I can guarantee you that there is nothing that money, sex, ambition, alcohol, or self-righteousness can do to lighten your burden. Turn instead to the God who loves you and pray the way Moses did. Turn to the God who will listen, a God that is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands and forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we come to you knowing that we don't deserve grace, we don't deserve forgiveness, but that you offer it, and you offer it abundantly. You didn't turn away from your people when they sinned against you, and you do not turn away from us. Thank you, Lord, that we have the Lord Jesus who brings to us a new covenant in his blood that we are redeemed. Please, Father, give us strength to turn toward you and not our idols in our distress. In Jesus' name, amen.